The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today is Sean Randall an internationally known full-trance channelist for a wise and loving consciousness who calls himself Torah. Welcome to In Discussion. I am joined today by Sean Randall, an internationally known full-trance channel for a wise and loving consciousness who calls himself Torah. Together they specialize in an in-depth approach to personal and spiritual development, widely known for teaching the skill and art of channeling for the past 24 years. Sean, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, Sean, I should, I should really ask you the, the question at the beginning here. What is channeling um, for our listeners? What, is the, uh, what description can you provide us? Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, channeling is the process which a person transmits messages from presumed discarnate sources of information uh, external to one's own consciousness or information from paranormal sources, one could say. So receiving information from beyond the self and then transmitting it in various ways. But I can talk more in depth about what that actually is. There's uh, so much about channeling that is misunderstood, and I like to demystify it. But uh, one could say that uh, essentially it's a telepathic process that then becomes more solidified um, where the telepathy is somehow manifested as the voice speaking through. So there's actually different levels of channeling. One could say there's relay channeling where you hear telepathically a message and then you speak what you're hearing and that you're simply relaying what you're hearing from a discarnate source. And then there's direct voice channeling, which is where you are not the intermediary, but rather the voice is coming directly through you from that source of intelligence. And so I make the distinction between the two types of channeling, the one being relay and the other being direct voice channeling. And that can clarify it a little bit because there's a lot of misunderstanding. Uh, Clairvoyance, for example, relay channel quite often information and they're the go-between. They are also somehow interpreting what they're hearing. Sometimes they're repeating verbatim what they're hearing, but it's still that their own personality is involved. And what I do is that I put my entire personality aside so that the other personality, the source of intelligence that I'm going to be channeling, can come directly through me. Can we, can we return to the history of channeling, Sean? Um, I, I have uh, done some research with the the Oracle of Delphi, which is absolutely fascinating, seeing that it's it's dating back to 1400 BC. Um, how uh, does that uh, work 
uh, in your daily life what what are the the the, the parts of of that history that that you apply well in the telling classes that i teach i mention it as an evidence that the physical phenomena of telling has been around for thousands of years that it's nothing really new in terms of the physical phenomena itself um, the Oracle at Delphi was um, a very interesting case because it was always a young woman, started with a young woman, and then when she would sort of complete her time on Earth, um, they would elicit uh, another young woman to take the place. It became sort of a traditional situation. And um, she would utter these very strange sounds and guttural ut- utterances that the priests would interpret which is interesting because she spoke, uh, supposedly was speaking with, of the god Apollo. So the Oracle of Delphi came through the Apollo temple as the setting, and then the voice that was coming through her was ostensibly, supposedly, the, the god Apollo. So there was a lot of political uh, maneuvering going on there um, in getting the different uh, prophecies. And the Oracle of Delphi was geared toward prophecy, whereas modern-day channeling is geared toward um, self-realization, enlightenment, teaching, healing, and spiritual development. So that's a very big difference. Uh, Channeling the Oracle and some of the ancient forms of channeling were more prophecy-oriented, whereas in modern times they're geared toward uh, education. Now, was this lady uh, in effect the the, the priestess or the representative of Apollo? She was considered to be a priestess, yes. And and yet her job was just to sit on this tripod sort of seat and vocal channel this strange entity. No one would see it directly. She was always hidden behind a, a screen or a wall. And then the priests would do their best to interpret what she said. Sometimes there were misinterpretations and wars were fought when they ought not to have been. And, uh, but she herself, as a young woman, and was not really um, given powers uh, to, in any sense of the word, but rather that she was the voice for this entity that they called Apollo, who was the god of the sun, one of the primary deities of the Greek pantheon. Uh, so essentially, Apollo was a, a, an idol. Would that be the best way to term that? No, I wouldn't say idol. That Apollo was uh, one of the deities of the time. Uh, Zeus, as well. You know, the whole pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses uh, were things that that were believed in. They they were to the Greeks like Jesus and Mary. You know, real entities that they. Um, would worship and honor and uh, devote to and uh, make offerings to. And so the god Apollo was a a weighty one, was right up there with Zeus. Uh, Actually, Apollo's the son of Zeus. And um, so when this young woman started having these vocal things happen in this certain location, I don't know how it eventually got identified that it was Apollo. That's not in the literature at all. No one really knows. But somewhere along the line, somebody said, ah, that must be the God Apollo. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how that happened. 
but um, the prophecies were quite good and quite accurate as long as they were interpreted correctly. And you see a lot of prophecy in the Bible in terms of channeling, too. You know, there's evidences of that. Now, I noted in some documentation that uh, this oracle uh, finally came to an end in the 4th century uh, AD mm-hmm. when when uh, the, the newly Christian Rome um, uh, somewhat uh, changed things, uh, prescribed it, uh, you know, prophesizing. And, and what, what was that transition? What was occurring there? Uh, what was the... Well, the, the, the in, the, in the broad stroke view of it, um, I'd say that the transition was that um, the, how to say, the, the priests of the more modern time uh, were the go-between between humanity and the gods, rather than an oracle. And there was a slight shift, oh, well, away from prophecy. The priests were... Um, tending to people, taking care of them, nurturing them, praying for them as intermediary. Uh, the other thing was the influence of Jesus and Buddha. That, that's huge there, because Jesus and Buddha both taught that um, that uh, heaven is within, kingdom of God is within you, that idea that you have your own access to the divine. And this was very revolutionary in, in those times, of course. And slowly but surely, that view of humanity and consciousness took over more and more. Uh, but with the advent of the Catholic Church, you have the priests as the intermediaries, kind of in, in counterpoint to that at the same time. But one of the other reasons the fall of the oracles came was because of the, um, the conquest of Rome. When Rome conquered so much of the known world, and especially Greece, um, it, it diluted the influence and the power of the oracles. There were many, many, many temples of oracles. There was the Oracle of the Dead, uh, which was where people would go to speak directly to their ancestors. There was um, dream oracles where they would go to what they called clinics. The Greeks originated the clinics. Uh, the word it came from a Greek word. Our modern-day clinic comes from the concept of the Greeks, where you would go to a center or a clinic, and there were Greek, uh, sorry, there were um, dream clinics or dream oracles. Uh, there were all kinds of oracles that were like our modern-day clinics. You would go to an oracle for the help you need. But then all that changed as as. Uh, civilization evolved and of course the influence of Jesus and Buddha came in and I I guess as we move on and we get to the 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 middle 1800s with Carl Jung uh, how profound was he because he was working uh, pioneering that field of dream analysis Um, where was it at this stage Uh, how how profound was it in society his works very profound. In fact, it's really only being taken in a broader influence today in modern times. Um, but Carl Jung departed from uh, Sigmund Freud. He had been a student of Freud. And uh, 
what Carl Jung's major contribution was, uh, I, I could say he has many contributions, but was the concept of the unconscious mind and that somewhere within the unconscious mind there is a connection to what he called the collective unconscious mind. So by identifying that there is some aspect of the psyche that's connected to all others, all other psyches, it would make sense that one could access other sources of intelligence and through the through the unconscious mind. But Carl Jung's great contribution was that by dream looking at dreams even more in depth than than Freud did, um, he discovered that there were symbols in certain people's dreams that connected to the collective unconscious that the person could in no way know in their own lifetime. Mandalas, for example. People would dream mandalas and draw them. Uh, Carl, Carl Jung studied 40,000 dreams. He noted 40,000 dreams, some of them his own, of course, many thousands of them were his own. And um, by seeing that there were universal symbols that were coming up in countless dreams and his clients' dreams, he could see that there was a link to the collective and within the collective, and that the collective uh, unconscious was indeed a reality. So that was a great contribution. And it sort of showed, uh, taking it into modern times, that what some of the quantum theorists are saying now, which is that non-local mind uh, may be connected to the subatomic unified field. This is controversial still among, uh, you know, modern, uh, well, let's say, um, traditional quantum physicists. But the theorists uh, feel that the non-local mind is something that relates to the non-local subatomic field. And this is very powerful. And Carl Jung sort of links all that together, though he didn't talk about quantum physics himself. His explanation of the collective unconscious fits together with some of the new modern quantum theorists' philosophies and theories. He seemed to be an amazing man. Um, Not only was he very analytical, I suppose, but he was a great studier of Eastern and Western philosophy uh, and, and literature and the arts. Um, mm-hmm. quite amazing um, how he could put all of that into a melting pot and, and come out with the, the research and the conclusions that he did, uh, especially back in uh, the 1800s. Was it a, a popular um, area of study uh, in well, society? Um, no, actually. And actually, he's a little later than that. Uh, he's the beginning of the 20th century, 1900s, um, that Carl Jung uh, started coming into his own right around during World War One, and thereafter. Uh, he had branched out from Freud. But uh, yes, at that time period, the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a tremendous... Um, well, I'm not an academic on this, but a rise of education because of the printing press, and so information was available to more people. And so the the thinkers and philosophers of the age just were having a field day exploring things. But in the 
30s and 40s, we see Carl Jung connecting up with the Joseph Campbell material, looking at mythology and the archetypes of the heroes and heroines that we see in mythology. And that was a very great contribution of Jung as well, the archetypes that that we live, that we embody in our lives, that uh, are so clearly seen through the art and the histories and of the mythology that in the Joseph Campbell work. So it all starts fitting together. Um, oh, you know, in in the really in the middle twentieth century. Was there any conflict or, or um, opposition to the the Bible, um, or or was that uh, very much uh, taken into account with with somebody like Jung's research? H- how do those work together? Well, Jung researched the Bible, and in terms of, I think the major figures and the major identities, the uh, the roles that the different leaders, spiritual leaders, played. And I don't really myself know exactly what Jung said about the Bible, but I, um, I believe it was taken in a balance with other philosophic literature and spiritual literature because, as you said, he studied the East and the West, and he saw similar patterns, as did Joseph Campbell, um, with the archetypes, the roles, and the teachers, and and the idea of transpersonal consciousness, or consciousness that goes beyond the average waking human self, and um, mystical states, and studied uh, in a psychological context, as well as philosophical context. Can we move on there to discussing the the altered states of consciousness, um, and and moreover, how you yourself actually begun uh, the art of channeling? Mm, sure. Um, well, altered states is key to being able to channel because it is an altered state that allows you to attune yourself or oneself to a discarnate entity or an uh, an intelligence beyond the self. And I was in a mediumship class, actually, uh, for my beginning development, and I also studied self-hypnosis so that I could learn to relax myself down more into the um, alpha state, uh, the, the beta and theta. You know, there's the different levels of brainwave, alpha, beta, theta, and delta states of consciousness the measurement of the brain waves. But just being in a relaxed state of uh, consciousness is an altered state. People experience altered states every day driving down the road, you know, kind of go into that hazy place. And so channeling for me and also the way I teach it is a matter of developing the skill of finding a particular uh, frequency, if you will, on the scale of human consciousness where you can tune in to an external source of intelligence. Again, like I mentioned before, telepathically, it's like a telepathic tuning in. You can tune in person to person. Why not be able to tune in person to discarnate? Now, when you're, you're, when you're channeling, though, Sean, are you effectively transitioning into a, a, another world, another plane? Mentally and psychologically, yes. 
um, I'm adjusting myself to another reality, I would call it that way, another dimension, another reality, another point of view. And uh, so when this other voice comes through me, it's with a different point of view than I have in my own waking daily state where I'm used to gravity and walking around and eating and sleeping and all the things humans have to do. So it's it's an attunement that allows um, for this other level of consciousness to come through. And that altered state is very ple- pleasurable, by the way. It feels very blissful, very deep, very rich in terms of uh, physical sensations. When I come out of trance, I feel refreshed, I feel... Uh, balanced, I feel, you know, more in tune with my own environment. How long did it take you to reach that stage? How many years before you were perfected in that art? Oh, that's a very good question. It it depends how much a person is actually practicing channeling as to how well they're able to put themselves completely aside. Um... For me, I would say, hmm, boy, it's it's a relative question because uh, I always feel I'm improving it. I always want to improve it, uh, even now after 25 years, actually. But uh, initially, it was within the first year. And I would practice a few times a week. And I guess over a period of six months with regular practice, I was used to putting myself aside and used to having another voice come through me. And then the more I started working with people and uh, doing one-on-one sessions, the better and better that got. But I'm sure that must be a completely different approach, different process, um, teaching yourself channeling and actually training, educating other people to channel. Yes, it is. However, um, the experiences that I had sort of informed how I could describe it to students because, as I say, I like to demystify the channeling process and and help them to see, okay, here is how we can do it. We can go into a meditative state, an altered meditative state. It's very much like um, meditation. And there's a lot of uh, psychology that talks about talking to your inner self-helper, the inner voice that we all have within us, and that one can start by talking to one's own inner wisdom voice or inner self-helper, and then from there develop that even further to a more external source. And so uh, teaching it through guided visualization and meditation is is the route that that makes it very easy to, uh, to train people. Does it work for everybody, or or are there certain individuals that you've come across in over the years who are not receptive to this? Well, if if they come to class, they're receptive because they want it. You know, they they have a desire for that, and that's that's a key element. Um, however, there are certain people that are more predisposed toward vocal trans channeling than others. The analogy that I use is like playing the violin. You know, anyone, any child at the age of three, four, or five can pick up a violin and go squeak, squeak, squeak and practice at it and develops a certain degree of competency. But 
not everyone's going to be an Isaac Stern or a Yehudi Menuhin that really can make it soar. And that's partly maybe out of their dedication, but also certain predispositions they may have been born with. For example, a violinist has to have a certain kind of fingers to to play those little strings. I don't know how they do it. It's amazing to me. <laughs> to press the strings down, they have to be certain uh, things. Just as a dancer has to be born with a certain type body in a certain proportion in order to develop as a dancer. So I think there is something with vocal trance channels in the way of a predisposition that one comes in with, but to to the degree of telepathically resourcing other sources of information, anyone can do that at the telepathic or the relay channeling level. That's possible for anyone who wants to do it. But the direct voice channeling, that is a little more specialized, and there do seem to be certain predisposed individuals. Is this a um, an effective counseling technique? Is it used in counseling for people in difficulties, whether it's physical or mental? Oh, very much so, yes. Um, I do a lot of counseling as a vocal trans channel, and uh, the benefits of it, as opposed to regular counseling, is that it's multidimensional in nature. For example, if someone is face-to-face with a major issue in their life that relates to a past life blockage or a past life trauma, many times entities can see right into that, that multidimensional information, like, oh, here's what happened to you in 1850, and here's how it happened and what happened, and these are the effects you're feeling now. And that's helped unlock tremendous blockages for people. So it's a very useful counseling tool, channeling. In fact, one of my students um, did his graduate degree and wrote a paper on that, counseling as a to- uh, channeling as a counseling tool. So I'm very proud of him for doing that. He did a very good job with it. So there's some nice uh, uh, academic study that's gone into that. And there are some psychologists that have been in my classes that uh, use channeling as a tool to their traditional psychology counseling. And I was going to ask, um, regarding the, the certification, the, the, the standards, the integrity of the teaching, uh, how many uh, people have you mentored over the years who still work with you or, or still work closely uh, with you in, in uh, whether it's uh, in partnership with yourself or who have gone out alone um, to uh, find their own way with this? Oh, well, many. Um, but the cream at the top, the percentage, the small percentage of vocal trans channels that come out of my classes with that capacity to vocal trans channel, that small percentage that develops it and continues to do their their own personal psychological growth um, is very small, and those that go on to teach it is very small, but those that give uh, channel consultations that I'm still in touch with, I'd say, oh, 100 or or less, like somewhere between 50 and 100. So and the, there, are, there are different levels uh, of channeling then. Um, th- perhaps 
your students are not all completely successful, but does it effectively change their lives, the way they think, oh, their, yes, their it, thoughts of harmony and, and, and balance? Oh, absolutely. Um, the three levels of certification that we're looking at now, I have a committee that and we're about to get this all totally in writing and codified. The three levels um, are that the one level where one is capable of channeling for oneself with the relay channeling, understanding the value of that level of counseling for themselves, that level of self-responsibility that one can choose to use channeling for personal development is the first level of certification. And everyone achieves that by the end of the course. If they stay the course through, they reach that level, no question. The second level of the vocal trance channeling for professional purposes, that's a more specialized area where people continue to practice and we practice session, do practice sessions in the classes and, um, you know, there's, there's more, more, a lot more skill that, that's required there. And that's another level. Then the third level of certification would be for one who could go on to teach it. The, the so it's, it's, they're all successful. People that come out of the classes are all successful at some level of understanding what channeling is all about and using it for themselves at the very least. What sort of uh, environment do you need for your workshops? Is there any particular uh, location? Uh, what is it that you need to set up as that paradigm for people coming into this? Well, basically, uh, a place similar to a yoga studio where there's silence and quiet and uh, where people can focus easily and feel tranquil and also uh, safe and secure as far as that environment. Also, uh, a psychological environment of dedication and devotion that people are there for a higher purpose to, to really learn and develop themselves humanly and, and spiritually. And then also we use music in the guided meditations. There's guided meditations that take one into the deeper parts of the self. And the music very much helps that environment as well. Well, let's listen to some of your music. We're just going to uh, listen to 30 or 40 seconds and see what sort of environment this is setting up for your students. Okay, as you listen, you might just want to see if you can tune into deeper level of your your own self and your own wisdom just for the fun of it. <laughs> okay. Sean, that music is quite outstanding. What does that do? Uh, what is the purpose of that as you move into the workshop? Well, um, it's, it is the idea of 
calming and soothing the what the Buddhists call the monkey mind, the, all the ways that our mind jumps around from thought to thought, to let go of that linear logical thinking and the jumping mind, and to bring it into a point of focus, slowing it down, slowing it down. Uh, the music by, is by Paul Armitage, by the way, a wonderful musician from Canada. And it just serves to bring everything into a clearer, slower, sharper focus. Is it specifically composed for this, uh, for, for this type of workshop, Sean? I don't believe so, but Paul himself feels that he channels some of the music. Uh, I've spoken to him on the phone. I, I like his music a lot, so I reached out to him to, to chat with him, and he... He will compose for people, um, in a sense, tapping into them to channel their essence and uh, something like that. But I don't, I don't know how specifically he was with that piece of music. It's just that I found that music and thought it was very nice. Now, as you uh, develop the the workshop and you um, you you played this music at some stage and you have uh, introduced the concept. What occurs to your students? Do you see a pattern uh, develop in every workshop? A pattern develop? Yes. Well, there's certain a, a certain course of action, and almost like a um, a syllabus that we follow in the developmental process of channeling. And we start first by getting people in touch with their subconscious mind, uh, the things that we are store, storing all the time in our subconscious that are not always available to our waking thought, and getting in touch with the subconscious mind, and from there the higher conscious mind, or our deeper source of our own wisdom, uh, we call it the higher self, and we work first with the higher self, in a sense, asking it to be partner with us in developing a channeling process so that any of the external intelligences that would come to us would be only coming with the guidance and the approval, if you will, of the higher self. So it's sort of like an inner uh, screening system, if you will, to work first with the higher self and set the intention that one wants to attract a, a guide or a counselor that is very, very wise, very loving, and only has the higher good in mind. So basically that's sort of the process that we use, going deeper and deeper into the self first to understand the self, then the higher wisdom of the self, and then in tandem with that, then reaching out to other sources, other counselors, other discarnate consciousness. Uh, does it become a very emotional experience for people? Is, is it a way of, of healing uh, very quickly? Uh, what, what, is, what is the typical reaction that you see in people in this process? Oh, it can be a very healing process. Some, for some people it's more emotional than others, but one of the fundamental things that I've seen over the years is that people slowly come to realize that they're lovable, that they're, in a sense, loved by higher consciousness. And so many people grow up with some form of shame that they hide and keep 
under wraps or in their subconscious mind. Um, channeling, feeling that there are sources of higher intelligence that love and accept you just as you are can be very transformational to people. Overall, I see that as one of the general, uh, well, almost across the board outcomes that, that we see from the classes to feel loved and lovable. That there's, and that's a very profound thing. That's a very profound thing. It, it can sound cliche to say it, but at that very deep level of mind to say, wait a minute, I'm, I am loved. I am lovable just as I am. Because here are these wise beings that are accepting me just as I am. They may recommend you can improve this, you can remove, improve that, but basically they're, they're accepting me as I am. That's very profound for people that come to my classes. What, what occurs, Sean, uh, once you come out of the channeling? Uh, obviously the, the, uh, the person goes through immense change, uh, uh, immense emotion. What occurs at the end of your workshop or what occurs every time you come out of this state? Uh, what occurs to the, the human psyche? How do they react and how do you prepare them to maintain that level of harmony, that, that feeling about themselves? Mm. Well, uh, going back to the feeling loved, you know, coming out of an altered state where there's been a, an excellent communication going on, um, there's a sense of balance and harmony. The anxiety is all gone, fears are gone. But then life goes on. You know, they go out of the room, they get into their car, they go on with their life. And what's then needed, of course, is uh, maintaining a certain level of integration. In other words, integrating that level of unconditional love into one's life becomes the process. And that can be forever. <laughs> that can go on forever uh, throughout one's entire life. Um, I'd say that the channeling process is one of integration of unconditional love as well as a human integration of the psyche where we integrate and come to know all the parts of ourselves. So, uh, so really channeling has to be a constant in your life. Uh, I, I'm sure that um, when people attend church and they go through that emotion uh, and then they have to walk out of those doors and uh, uh, walk back into the real world. Is that somewhat uh, similar to this, that they must uh, keep this instilled in their minds wherever they are? Um, do, do they have to? Uh, do they have to top up, as it were? Do they have to look at channel, <laughs> channeling as a as a constant or a repetitive process to keep them uh, to keep them in that that uh, harmony in in that state? Yes, I think uh, absolutely. So it's a little bit like exercising your physical body. It, it's part of maintenance to keep that balance. Um, so you don't just work out and get in shape and then never do it again. Uh, psychological balance and spiritual integration uh, is, a, is a constant process that requires maintenance and different activities, different actions for that. And um, in terms of 
keeping channeling as a part of one's life, I like to recommend that those who really learn to channel well for themselves do it with some regularity and tape themselves and then listen to the tape. In other words, record, if they're vocal channeling, record what the vocal channel entity is saying to them and then listen to the tape. That's what I do for myself uh, when I need to do some personal growth or some psychological integration work. Uh, I'll channel for myself. I'll go into an altered state. I'll have posed my question, put on a recording, and um, record it and then listen to it back, and I hear all these amazing answers (laughs) that I can then work with. But yes, it's a process of keeping... Of, of maintaining contact now, with that element. because I have not experienced this, um, I, I could be uh, very ignorant and, and uh, think of the, the, the picture of Sherlock Holmes uh, sitting on the couch uh, swinging a, 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 wa- a watch uh, in front of somebody's eyes. It's clearly very different <laughs> to that. W- what is it that you do to uh, immerse that person in front of you and and what is it exactly that you do that is uh, gentle and sublime that then brings them out of it without um, any sort of shocking uh, consequences well basically they guide themselves into the altered state so you know hypnosis is is very different hypnosis is where there is an external human being inducting you into a deep altered state and uh, with trans-channeling, people learn to completely do it for themselves. In other words, they'll sit down, and we start with what we call an affirmation invocation. And mentally, in their own mind or out loud, they'll speak an affirmation invocation that starts the process going. And then with their eyes closed, they just go deeper and deeper, but they guide themselves. And so... There's always an emphasis on self-responsibility, self-guidance, and uh, so there's never giving one's power over to another human, or to the entity for that matter. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a blending as opposed to something, a takeover of some kind. Uh, so it, it's not at all jarring coming out because it's just like waking up out of a beautiful meditation or waking up out of a dream. And it is very sublime. It's very beautiful. It's like being immersed in a warm bath of unconditional love and then opening your eyes. Some people say, oh, can I just stay there for a while? (laughs) But slowly we we come out of trance and go on with the day. (laughs) Do do, do they, in effect, become uh, somebody else in that period? Oh, when they're in the blending with the unseen? Yes. Uh, They... What what happens is, it, Jane Roberts, who was a great, great channel in the 60s and 70s, uh, she really paved the way of modern channeling. She's channeled an entity named Seth, wrote some brilliant books. They're highly respected. And she said, she said, I go to a different psychological state. In other words, she didn't say, I go out of my body or I go away. She said, I go, I move to a different psychological state. And I love that description of it because that's that's the way I experience it as well. I moved to a very quiet, blissful state where I'm in a dream on the side. It's very much like a dream with, that you can't remember. And that state of 
mind, that state of being, that altered state, is like uh, a very benign, restful, embraced, and and loving state. I, I was I, 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 I was going to, and sorry to interrupt, Sean, but I was going to ask that question. When you come out of the of this state. Do you have uh, recollections? Do you have detail of what occurred in that in that time, or is it simply that you were in immersed in this wonderful place? Well, for myself, uh, I call it a semi-conscious state. I don't recall, unless I want to recall, or unless the entity Torah that I channel wants me to recall then I usually get it as images or pieces of uh, wisdom, pieces of information. I can't recall, per se, phrases or sentences or specific things that were said. Um, but there's a range for, in, for all trans channels. Some trans channels are 100% unconscious in the black of black of unconscious mind. And, but most channels, like 98% of channels, have some degree of consciousness, some degree of awareness there, even if it's a very small degree, like the dream that you can't quite remember when you wake up in the morning, it's very similar to that feeling. That, what is that dream again? Oh, what was that? What did, what would have happened there? Where you know your consciousness is there when you were dreaming at night, but you can't quite pull it in, and that's very similar to the trans-channeling state. And again, there is a spectrum to that. Some people are a little conscious, some people are a little lot conscious and some people are 100 percent unconscious so every person is different uh, does that make it an addictive uh, process uh, does it become so part of your life that you want to and need to return to that uh, frequently i wouldn't call it addictive um in that way uh but it, because it's such a, a source of encouragement and inspiration uh, in one's life, it, it can become a part of one's life. It can become an element in one's life. But not in an addictive sense and used as a crutch in that sense because the, the channeled entities are always emphasizing self-responsibility. In other words, a modern-day entity is not going to go telling their channel, do this, do that. You have to quit your job, start this other job. You have to go. They don't talk that way. They don't do that. If they're worth, worth their salt and, and are truly a wise being, what they do is they show information, options. They make recommendations. They may encourage a person to go in a certain direction and say, well, the consequences would be this if you don't quit smoking, for example. But they're not going to say, you have to quit smoking. Right. And and there's a big difference. That's uh, that's how channeling has evolved into modern times where we, we are now are in this time period of the information age where self-responsibility is uh, prerequisite for life. Um, so it couldn't really become addictive in that way because the entities wouldn't let that happen if they're worth their salt. Does that make sense to you? Yes, and uh, with that said, uh, what is the future of channeling from your perspective? Uh, what is ahead for us uh, with with consciousness? Uh, and and uh, I know that in your 
your uh, notes that you had sent to me that you uh, raised uh, quantum physics theory and its relevance to this. Um, what can we expect? What do you see as a progression? Mm. Well, as a progression, I see greater and greater acceptance of non-physical intelligent life forms and um, more use of that level of counseling information in the future, but also co-creation. In other words, setting an intention for something that one wants in one's life and getting assistance from discarnate sources um, by way of the wisdom, by way of the deeper meanings, principles, ideals, etc., that what one wants to create may involve. And um, this word co-creation is a very big word that's going. You, we're going to see more and more in the future, co-creating with the non-physical realms and non-physical forces and intelligence. Um, the power of thought, the power of crossover consciousness assisting human consciousness. More telepathy, we'll be seeing a whole lot more of that. There's some excellent books uh, about studies that have been done uh, over the last 20, 30 years pointing to the reality of crossover phenomena or crossover consciousness and the non-local mind. Uh, we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of that. The use of intuition is is square one. There's a lot of PhDs and authors now that are out there teaching intuition as a very acceptable subject, as a very acceptable um, source of information and assistance in one's life. How does one develop intuition? So that's that's happening already, and then it's just going to be growing and growing from there. Channeling is just one piece of the big picture of human consciousness evolving. Now, you yourself have a master's degree. Um, how has that uh, supported your work? Supported my work? Um, is, it a, is it a prerequisite or... or uh, can you become uh, a, a, a channel um, uh, specialist without, without, yeah, without a master's? Oh, certainly. you can. Anyone can become a channel in, in some way. But the way I feel about education is that the more a channel educates themselves, the more they have available as a toolkit for the unseen counselors to use. In other words, thinking of it in terms of vocabulary. Um, if I have in my vocabulary information about the Oracle of Delphi or uh, certain, let's say, uh, terminology that Carl Jung may have used to describe consciousness, then that entity is going to have the use of that terminology as well. So I, I try to inspire my students to get educated, read a lot of books, find out as much as you can about the new modern metaphysics and what's happening, because a lot's happening now in modern-day metaphysics, and the more they know, the more is in their toolkit, because if you think of the toolkit as like language, just even the, the English language, 
that's what the entity has to use. They have to use what we have to be able to express themselves. So it's a blending of the two. And the more we as humans have this education or an education, then the more the entity has by way of toolkit to use. Now, in in your workshops uh, and your Center for Personal Transformation, are you accredited? Uh, can uh, can people uh, you know, follow through these workshops and get any sort of accreditation towards a qualification? Yes, the channeling class classes are offering certification now. Um, the accreditation is not through the state uh, at this point. That's uh, that would be way in the future. But under the auspices of the Center for Personal Transformation and Development of the Skill of Channeling, uh, we offer certification for channels completing the different levels of accomplishment. And for our listeners, uh, I know that you have a wonderful website at seanrandall.com. Whereabouts are you based, uh, or do you travel throughout the world with your workshops? Well, a bit of both. I'm, uh, the classes, the weekly classes, are at my office in the Los Angeles area in Woodland Hills. And uh, then I do travel to Mexico and to England for other kinds of workshops that I give. The channeling classes, per se, are um, in L.A. The classes that, and the workshops that I give outside are channeled workshops for the development of other topics, for example, um, uh, healing past lives, healing family karma, um, integrating more joy into one's life. Workshops are very much geared toward personal and spiritual development, not so much channeling. But the courses, the classes uh, in L.A. are geared toward developing channels. Well, Sean, again, uh, your website for the benefit of our listeners is www.seanrandall.com, where there is much information about this. I do thank you for being on this program, Sean. It has been absolutely enlightening, and uh, do wish you the the very best for the future. And thank you so much for having me on. It's it's a wonderful thing, (laughs) stretching our consciousness and stretching our, our views of reality. So thank you very, very much. You are very welcome. And for our listeners, if you need any more information on this or any other program, you can visit davidgibbons.org. On today's uh, guest, Sean Randall, again, the website is seanrandall.com, and I'm sure that Sean would be very happy to answer any questions that you may have. That uh, You can either go to the blog at davidgibbons.org or go to Sean's website itself. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning. Good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.